Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 242, recorded July 2nd, 2016. So as promised, we're finishing off a publisher today, and that publisher is Peter Pan Records. Uh, Clapping is that we've completed them, not necessarily (laughs) for their uh, stellar quality of storytelling. Right. So we already did most of them because uh, there was quite a few that came out that were like considered um, motion picture era. So we did those already. But right. uh, these are definitely classic Taz and uh, they came out with like a little record and the kids could you know put it on the record player and read along with the uh, with the comic. Yeah. So today's episode will have the Mirror of Futility. Followed by the crier in emptiness, and then the time stealer. Yeah, you know, as I was going through these, I mean, these are these are aimed at kids, I guess. I mean, the record that goes along with it that gives you, well, they they read it, and then they have like like sound and even music, sure, to go along with it. It's a full audio experience to go along with the book, and so that's a that's a kid kind of thing. Um, so you can't expect, you know, a, a amazingly fantastic adult affair, granted. But for what it is, at least one of the stories, I, I thought it kind of appealed to me as an adult also. Um, uh, this first one, The Crier of uh, a, a Mirror in Futility? A, a Mirror for Futility. Um, the The other ones were even less so appealing to me as an adult. But right. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, considering it's kind of like a kiddie thing, I, I think it was better than what you would, most of the stories were a little better than what you would expect for something that's really aimed at kids. Right. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I thought the, I mean, I did listen to the record of two of these, um, and I thought the, you know, the production quality was good. Yeah. It, they actually had different voice actors, which was right. nice. Yeah, and they were decent, at least. I only listened to one of them, and that was the uh, Crier and Emptiness. I just had to listen to that one. Yeah, that one was actually interesting because uh, they played the music that, uh, well, we won't talk about it now. But... No, let's not, let's not ruin it. <laughs> it's, it's just such a surprise, especially <laughs> when Mr. Connors comes out of the elevator. <laughs> I was like, what? What? Anyway, we'll, we'll see that in a minute. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to jump into the Mirror of Futility first? Let's do it. All right. So I do not know when these came out, aside from maybe around 1975, I believe. Is that, is that what yeah, you're getting I, into? I think I saw 1975 um, on one of the pages as like a copyright kind of thing. Okay. Okay, good. All right. And depending on when you got this, um, it had quite a few different covers. Um the last time they reprinted it, it was actually a picture from uh, the Star Trek to motion picture with Spock, Kirk, and McCoy in their pajama uniforms. Uh, but if you had uh, some earlier copy, uh, earlier versions of the book, uh, they were all like panels from, from the story. So this just showed either Kirk, McCoy, Spock, and maybe Scotty. And then there was another one that showed Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and a blonde-haired gentleman and a black gentleman sitting at the controls uh, looking at a view screen with a ship shooting at him. So yes. <laughs> those were the different covers I could find uh, for this book. And a lot of times it had uh, more than one story in it. Right. So actually Mirror for Futility and the Time Stealers, that was in one book slash record. Right. But I saw another one that actually also had um, uh the Starve of – I forgot which one. There was a couple other ones. Okay. But that might have just been the record because the, they came out with a few audio stories that didn't have the comic book 
that came with it. Maybe those two were were those. Huh. But uh, but anyways, the the one that we're reading that came on the DVD had had those two together. Had the Time Stealer and the Mirror for Futility in the same PDF. Right, and that's what I'm familiar with it from the DVD. Right, and this was a short story, so I, my synopsis is, is very short. Um, so we'll just jump into that. Um, as with all the Peter Pan stuff, they don't credit any writer or artist. So we'll just jump into the story. So the Enterprise detects and then gets caught up in some strange radiation storm. They then find two ships locked in mortal combat. These vessels are of unknown design and much, much larger than the Enterprise. Ahura works on deciphering the language and eventually is able to pick up two voices. One refers to themselves as the Red Worm, and the other one refers to themselves as the Nax Empire. Spock checks his records and states that these two races have been extinct for the last 150,000 years. Kirk tries to talk to both groups and learns that each ship is automated and has no life on board. And they've been battling themselves for these last 150,000 years. Each ship thinks that the Enterprise is a trick from the other side. Kirk orders a retreat, and when the ships follow, he uses McCoy's suggestion to bluff the two computers by telling them that there are thousands of Federation ships on their way. The ploy works, and the two ships continue to attack each other, and will likely do so for another 150,000 years. The end. <laughs> that was brief. <laughs> I told you it was brief. Yeah. So... So McCoy's tactical idea, and, and wasn't it that um, McCoy's idea, okay, or, okay. so they definitely say, hey, we're going to have thousands of ships coming, you guys basically, nah, 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 we're going to get you. Right. Um, and isn't that what got the ships to stop attacking each other and then go after the Enterprise? Or did they continue attacking each other and go after the Enterprise? They stopped attacking each other and started chasing them until I thought McCoy right. um, came up with the idea of we're going to have 150,000 ships or whatever. Uh, I'd have to go back and relook. Okay, well, um, the main okay. So whichever it was, I like the idea that it's McCoy that comes up with the tactical idea rather than it 90% of the time being Kirk's idea and then you know. 9% of the time it being Spock's idea, and then McCoy never says anything. So right. I, I think that was – I like that part of it. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of the Corbinite maneuver mm -hmm. um, in that you're tricking someone to think you have something you don't. Right. So which is, there's nothing wrong with that because that, that was a good issue or episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so these – Automated ships were continuing their biological builders uh, war. So kind of like two doomsday machines fighting each other, whatever. Right. But interestingly enough, I think they said something about the idea that over the, I mean, like 150,000 years, these ships have been battling each other. That's amazing. But right. over that time, they used their computer smarts to be developing new weapons and new ways of battling each other. And that's kind of interesting. Um, it's implausible. I mean, how could you really be fighting for that long? But it's an interesting idea. Yeah, and yeah, that they're so equally batched that over all that time, neither one has gotten the advantage over the other to destroy it completely. Exactly. It seems, well, anyway. Unless it's in their programming to never actually win. Uh, <laughs> uh, you would hope that wouldn't be the case. Um, especially the way they're spouting language at each other. You know, verbal language. I mean, if they're really computers over this amount of time, you know, wouldn't you think they'd probably just start talking in bits and bytes finally with each yeah, other? But, eh, whatever. It's a, I, I think it was an interesting... It was a story that was a little bit more in keeping with the original kind of feel of the original series stories. 
Um, and it had a moral. You know, war is stupid, and uh, if you don't watch, you'll be fighting it long after your whole race is dead. Right, and the the fact that, you know, we're, we're talking about a war that's gone on, you know, in this case, past the creator's even lifespans. Or, mm-hmm. But, you know, there has been wars where people have warred with each other for something that happened generations back. And to the point where you don't even know why you're warring with that particular yeah. country or whatever anymore. So or I thought even, this was, yeah. yeah. Even so within religions, this... like in the Middle East. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, with the Sunnis and the – I forgot the other ones. But showing my world knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even religious factions that hate each other. And anyway. Well, and you have the Hatfield and McCoys here in the United States, where they uh, yep. feuding for all that time and yep. didn't even know why they were feuding. Groups of people, however right. they formed, whether it be religion or even just families or nations, right? Groups of people fighting each other for whatever reason. Right. They identify with themselves. They don't identify with the other ones. It's we versus them. There you go. Right. So no, I thought this. I thought overall this was a good story. It was yeah. short. Very brief. The acting in the in the audio part was pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Can, but, can we talk about the elephant in the room? Uh, yeah. Let's do it. There's <laughs> two of them. This is fascinating, and this isn't the only issue that did it. Now they they didn't do the other Peter Pans we did. They didn't do this. Yeah. Focus. Did. did they? Yeah. Okay. I didn't remember it well enough. Okay. So the bottom line is Ohura is drawn as a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Scandinavian beauty uh, who does have the red, um, you know, miniskirt on, but has blue, like, leggings, blue-colored leggings on. And this is not the original Uhura (laughs) at all. Um... Every once in a while, it's like it's drawn as if it was supposed to be, uh, n- n- um, what's her name? Michelle? No, Nichelle. Michelle, Michelle Nichols? Or, yeah. Yeah. Right. But then, obviously, colored incorrectly. Yeah. Okay. So, so what's the other example, Donovan? Well, the other example is that Sulu wears mm-hmm. a blue shirt through the whole thing. Is that all? Oh, 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 oh. And he's black. <laughs> Yeah, okay. so he's he's drawn as an African man. Um, doesn't look like um, Sulu at all. I mean, well, of it's course. not. No, you can't just say, "Oh, they miscolored him." Like I, a few panels of a horror, I could see maybe they just miscolored her. Uh, oh, but... the the tiny nose, the the thin lips. Uh, I didn't say every blue picture. eyes. Every once in a while, I could see. Okay. Okay. But yes, I mean, in some of these panels, she almost has no nose the way it's drawn. It's like, okay, so and why? Okay, so there's there's another guy that we'll see more of in the next issue, although he is on at least the cover of this issue. Uh, Right. The blonde haired um, navigator navigator who is named Connors and not Chekhov, and as far as I can tell from looking at the comic and reading the, the, the comic, he's not Russian. He's just probably just a normal, you know, a, a, a U.S. or British or whatever guy. And um, But we come to find out in, in, in another story, at least the audio track for it, they made him sound like Chekhov. So uh, the only reason I'm bringing this up now and not in the one where we actually hear him talking is that it's just another example of where it's like, what? What's the logic behind this? Right. It's almost, I always wonder if these were affiliated with Gold Key at all. <laughs> the, the art style is very similar, and they mm-hmm. both seem to take the same kind of liberties with, with the technology and the, and the characters a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's true, true. But, but I mean, but I, unlike, I don't. Unlike Gold Key, they did it out of ignorance, I think. I mean, the, the artist people, 
Um, this, I got to believe they made some conscious choices. I mean, the guy's name is Sulu. They call him Sulu. <laughs> That's right. not even close to African-American. That's true. So, so well, and, and they have Zulu. Uh, okay, so that's Zulu with a Z. I know. That's I, was trying, I was trying to be funny. So, are they trying to be more diverse? Well, you had diversity with a Japanese pilot and a uh, a, a Negro um, comm officer. You had diversity. So, what? was the purpose you you needed to have a hot blonde in the story is the female right is that why they did it uh, and connor's he's also a hot blonde well I, that's why i said female okay because <laughs> connor's is pretty hot too and he's blonde so there you go yeah i don't know i don't know where the disconnect happened but if you remember they did they had Maress in a previous issue and Peter Pan. Right. Okay. And they kept saying she was a cat person, yet she looked like Uhura does here. I think her her skin tone was non-human skin tone. Right. But aside from that, that was the only feline. I mean, and it's not even a feline. It was the only alien feature she had, yet they kept calling her uh, feline and that she liked the little, uh, the Bandai bear. No, not the Bandai bear. Whatever the little bear that would control people's emotions. Oh, God. Remember that one? Yeah, I remember that. So, yeah, I mean, so there they had a character from the animated series, but again, made up their own version of her. Uh, and they're doing the same thing to Sulu and Chekhov and Ahura here. <sighs> okay. It's just... It's odd. It's very odd. And unless you actually spoke to these people, we would never know. Right. Absolutely never know, because it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> or maybe somebody's done a thesis on this somewhere on the internet. We don't know. But <laughs> this this is the kind of thing you, I don't think it's possible to figure out without actually hearing it from the actual creative staff, the people that made these decisions. Right. Yep. So anyways, it didn't take me out of the story. In fact, it kind of invested me even more in the story because I was just like, oh, oh that's kind of funny. <laughs> I'm going to read closer to find more. <laughs> it it did not help me. It did not help to invest me in the story. But I, you know, this is like gold key. You just kind of, you know, you just accept things. You move on and you make your notes to go back later and talk about. But, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I, I took it and just ran. Right. Okay. All right. Well, same here. You want to move on to the next? Please, let's. Okay, so the next one we're doing is called Crier in the Emptiness. It had a number on the cover that said PR26. I have no idea whether that has any function in identifying the issue, but I just thought I'd mention it. It, too, had 1975 somewhere. as I think it was a Paramount copyright or something. And that PR26 was just their way of numbering... All of the Peter Pan stuff. Oh, okay. Like there was a Superman one, a Planet of the Apes one, a Captain oh, America one. They yeah, all had their okay. own PR number. Yeah, there was like a there's like an ad in one of these that that showed. Um, well, we'll get to that later, I guess. In the next, no, actually, this one. Well, actually, a mirror, think... a mirror for futility had. Oh, that was a question I had about this. A mirror for futility had um, at the very beginning. So you 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 open up the book. And it had these yellow, yellow, black, and maybe a little bit of red here and there, but mostly yellow and black, uh, little snippets of artwork mm-hmm. that obviously the main one looked like it was from some of these Peter Pan issues of Star Trek. But then it also had one that showed Superman and another one that, at least in the uh, DVD, it cut things off. And it looks like Sherlock Holmes is... Probably across from Batman, I would guess, but it's cut off. I can't fully see it. And then there's some guy with a automate, like a mechanical arm. It looks like. Anyway, so <laughs> I guess it was advertising the different uh, comics that they do in this uh, album form. Or exactly. Yeah, and I think that uh, the gentleman with the 
robotic arm was the million dollar man. Oh, is that what that was supposed to be? <laughs> Great. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so let's get back to Cryer and the Emptiness. The cover shows Kirk, Spock, and, potent- and a potentially black Lieutenant Uhura on the bridge, which is kind of interesting that the cover would show her black, um, dealing with loud or at least annoying musical sounds being pumped into the bridge. There's also an interesting mini-me, Enterprise, about to fly into Uhura's head. So that's the cover. The Enterprise is on a charting run through the partially explored Morin sector that is relatively devoid of stars and planets. Kirk states in his log that he expects their job to be complete within the next several days. On the bridge is an officer named Connors who is making his boredom with the sector's nothingness known. Suddenly, a brief sound is heard behind Kirk that he misinterprets as a comm station instrument. It happens again at another location on the bridge, and then another. Spock investigates. Kirk describes it as vaguely musical. Days go by, and the sound is still happening on a seemingly random basis. However, Spock notices a pattern. The sounds are emitting in a pattern that seems to move around the ship. It's as if an invisible entity emitting the sound is moving around the ship. In fact, there are inflections to the sound, uh, not unlike speech patterns. McCoy doesn't bite at first, but admits Spock's theory does fit what they are experiencing. Spock calls it a being constituted of sound itself, and it's getting louder. McCoy talks about how it's keeping some crewmen up, which can't continue for too long. Sleep deprivation for overextended periods can be deadly. McCoy talks about some crewmen getting relief by going into a shuttlecraft that goes outside of the ship. There's only so many people that could fit in, a shuttle, in the shuttlecrafts we have, even with some kind of shift schedule. Spock says they have no way of knowing how loud the sound may become. It has been getting louder. Who knows, it could become loud enough to shatter bone. Blondahura reports the sound is messing with communications gear in a way that is cutting off their ability to initiate communications with Starfleet. She says she is leaving several incoming channels open, but they will only be able to hear the entity. I really didn't understand all that. Kirk says they have to make contact with it. The entity, that is. Suddenly, the thing lets loose a very loud sound and not only causes great pain in the crew, but actually damages some of the instrument panels. Now the threat is clear. They must make contact, but how? Crewman Connors drags onto the bridge, apparently from the turbo lift, what appears to be a wacky outer space organ or synthesizer, a three-keyboard musical instrument, which is not portable. For no apparent purpose, it has a Mobius strip adorning it on its base beneath the keyboard. Where exactly he got this thing is not explained, but he starts playing it in an attempt to use music to communicate with the sound entity. A communications rhapsody between Connors playing away and the sound entity ensues that can be heard throughout the ship. Communication seems to be taking place just like it did in Close Encounters of a Third Kind. They still don't know what the entity, what the sound entity is saying to them, and they don't really know what they are saying to it, but at least the volume is at a non-damaging level. Connors eventually starts getting tired. Actually, he gets tired pretty quick. He presses on until finally he stops. The the sound entity makes one last big sound, then vanishes. What a finale. No encores, please. After a long period of silence, they come to the conclusion it is left for good. Connors is thanked for his comic jam, music jam. Comm channels are being cleared again. Uh, but Kirk tells Uhura not to bother contacting the nearest starbase. He says the creature just wanted to communicate with them. It may return someday, but
but hopefully by then they will be better able to communicate with entities such as it. They continue their sector charting. The end. I love the shot of him playing the uh, organ, and it looks like Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. That's that's what I was hearing when I was reading it. Right, right. And you read it before you listened to it, I assume. Right. Okay. Yeah, so Connors pulls this... It's kind of like a, a horseshoe-shaped cha- thing. So the key, the three keyboards, layered keyboards, are, are like in a, uh, a wraparound style. Um, like an organ, as opposed to like a, like a keyboard, or like, a, like an odd uh, organ. And where did he have this thing? If, I mean, did he... Okay, they don't explain anything. So did he go down to his quarters and drag this huge lug of a thing out of his quarters into the turbo lift, onto the bridge, out onto the the bridge. Is that what he did? I think that's what he did. I don't know about his quarters, but uh, he went somewhere to get it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or it could have just been in the closet. Maybe maybe he didn't go to the turbo lift. Maybe it was just a closet uh, well, it, in the it, back. It... <laughs> a very well-stocked musical instrument closet. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's ridiculous. And why couldn't he play this in his room or in the music hall or wherever it was originally? Yeah. Because the music's being heard all over the ship. Right. And that's not the only thing. May I may I mention a few other things that makes the story a real mess? Oh, there's more? Okay. <laughs> okay, so it's talking about the entity moving around the ship. And it kind of sounds like it, there's just one. Uh, but supposedly a large number of crewmen are affected by it and can't sleep. So is this one a single being moving around the ship really fast? Uh, or is it multiple ones? Or is it somehow able to be in multiple places at once? You know, the, the threat that McCoy is describing to the crew's health doesn't seem to jive with what Spock said about the entity to me. Uh, that's a good point because I, I was kind of thinking that it was they could hear it all over the ship, like through the com, uh, com stations. Oh, but com but st- it's never actually says that. So yeah, good uh, point. yeah. I don't know the whole thing about Ahura's describing about they can't broadcast out, but an incoming channel may be able to get through, and that people on the other side will only be able to hear the alien. I don't know. The main point is. They can't communicate with Starfleet. But the way they describe it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, no, it doesn't. Anyway, I, I know it's aimed at kids, so maybe they figure they don't have to make sense, but whatever. <laughs> um, Thank so, you, I think you hit it there. Yeah. So people can get relief by boarding a shuttlecraft and hanging around outside the ship? Okay. I kind of like that part. Well, but, okay, so is the Enterprise stopped? Or moving at sublight speed? Uh, no, but the... But how's the shuttle going to keep up? They just tethered it. Tether. They've got an attractor beam, so they're they're dragging it. Probably, yeah. <sighs> okay, fine. Yeah, just, it just seems just like if, if you're being attacked by something for days, I'm sure you would have made some sort of blog. And so at the end, when it's all over, and he's like, we're not going to tell anybody... Isn't that what you got out of it too? That that they're kind of keep it to themselves for some reason. Uh, okay, so we're moving beyond the shuttle thing and well, I'm back just to saying, the communications in, thing in general. I mean, they're they're doing a lot of you know all this stuff that they're doing to try to get people to sleep. I mean, right. towing the towing the the ship or even stopping the ship so that they can right. sleep in the in the shuttle. Yeah. There would be logs for all this, but then at the very end, doesn't he say they're not going to tell anybody? Oh, yeah. They're, well, they're not going to bother calling out for help because they don't think they need it. Well, they, uh, at least I think that's what. Okay, so that's what they're doing. They don't I need help now, but. Right. I mean, it's still going to be in the logs, but. Okay. All right. Well, that makes more sense. Yeah, for everything that's going on here, Kirk is pretty, pretty sure that that sound entity is not coming back, at least anytime soon. So I, I don't know why he's so sure about that. Um, if you're lonely, I mean, would would you just leave? Or might you come back for a little dirty drop-by? I don't know. 
Right. You've heard that slang, right? No, but I got what it means. Oh, well, it just means you don't call ahead of time. You just come by the house or apartment, whatever. To just show up. To just show up. That's what a dirty drop-by is. All oh, right. you thought it was something sexual. Oh, I did no, not no. know what it meant. <laughs> okay. Okay, where, where did Connors get the crazy organ? We just kind of talked about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, is it his personal property? Does he do weddings on the side? I don't know. It seems like a massive instrument to have in your quarters, but who knows? Hey, where did they set it up on the bridge? Because I've seen that bridge. There's not a lot of free space. No, there's not a lot. But you're right. The The shots are pretty centered around the organ. Right. So you don't really see as much what's going on around the guy playing Connors. I, I think they moved the captain's chair out of the way. Uh, to make room for this thing? This right. huge thing? I think so. Um, and the last thing I just wanted to say is, oh, I, well, okay, we kind of said this before. Uh, they just continue on and don't bother telling Starfleet. You know, right? That seems, you know, uh, and what and I assume the logs are going to be there, and Kirk's going to make a report because, and this is probably to your point, what if the next Starfleet vessel in the area does not happen to have a rocking keyboardist on board that can satisfy the entity's, entity's desire to chat them up? Right, and I shouldn't mean, somebody be trying to figure it out the language? Right, actively. Right, instead of just hoping. Right. I'm just I, I I hope we'll understand our own love of music so we can better communicate with others. <laughs> I don't I don't know. That's my that's my list. I'm done. So when you were reading it and you just saw this little, like little flash of light above Kirk's yes. head and he's like, "Uh-huh, are you going to get that?" <laughs> uh-huh. It, there's never a sound effect of that being music or a noise. It's just like a red flash. And then right. Uh it it wasn't until several panels later that that I think they even kept saying that it was an actual noise or something. I kept thinking that it was some sort of like oh, flat, a, a beam or flash. something. Yeah. But when you're reading the or when you're listening to the audio, it's just like you know all these crazy yeah, noises and stuff. Right. Uh, it's like a synthesizer so, or something. So you know that that's what that light's supposed to be. But reading the book, yeah, it doesn't say beep. Right. And if you want to say it's vaguely musical then why don't you have like little musical notes like they have on the cover on the cover right right where it, it, i agree with you it just looks like a flash and if they don't say it's a sound or they don't say it's vaguely musical you wouldn't know i mean because it's well it's a, a drawn the way they drew it right okay and as we mentioned earlier uh connor's is basically Chekhov, but with blonde hair and a different name right but you wouldn't know it from the way he's speaking in the text, you know, in the letterer text that's inside the, the speech bubbles. Does he have the Russian accent? Is, is he saying vessel? I, I vessel? do not remember anything in what his lines were that would indicate he is Russian. Right. However, no. go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, when you finally, okay. <clears throat> So we had actually texted each other during the week, uh, Donovan and I. And he actually texted, how did you like uh, Chekhov's musical abilities or whatever you said? And it was like, Chekhov? Chekhov wasn't in here. It was some. It was Connors that played. And it's like, you had pointed out, listen, you know, go to YouTube and listen to the, uh, the audio track. And sure enough, the voice actor who's doing Connors' part... He's got a rush. He's got a Chekhov Russian accent going. I would never have known that from <laughs> no. from from the from the comic. Just reading the comic, right? It's almost like another disconnect where uh, the the voice talent knew that he was supposed to have a Russian accent, so gave him one, even though he wasn't technically playing right Chekhov. So is that a disconnect between? Well, is it a disconnect between the? the art team and even the writing team that, that the voice actors, the people in charge of the voice end of it are saying, Hey, wait a minute. They didn't draw Chekhov. It shouldn't he be, you know, with a Russian accent. I don't know. It's just right. be yeah, consistent. It, it, it's all groups. over the place. Be uh, consistent. All three groups messed yeah. up. Yeah. Anyways, it, it was a good story, I guess. I mean, it was a light story. Yeah, yeah. They, all uh, this stuff shouldn't be taken 
to be too serious. And then when when they're really jamming out, uh, you know, those when when the whole panel is just all these odd crazy colors, reminded me of what what you see from like Laughing and other sixty right. shows. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if you look at the uh, the title page inside, that crazy hippie font they got going, that purple font where they have a title, the Crier oh. in Emptiness. It's like it's this. It's just this this hippie font. I believe that's what it's called. Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my word for it. Just, yeah, it, it looks like something from the sixties. Yeah, that's crazy. Crazy, crazy man. Crazy man. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Um, the last thing I want to say is. They talk about using earplugs to silence the annoying sound, but the plugs will block out conversation and orders being given as well. They can't do that. So, okay, so that all makes sense with today's technology. Or maybe the technology back in the the 70s when this was produced. But I just wanted to mention that probably by that time, there will be more sophisticated earplugs available type devices that you can program it as to what sounds can come through and not come through to your uh, the noise cancellation stuff well the noise cancellation stuff um uh, also uh there are things that shooters use you know firearms uh earmuffs with electronic circuitry in there that will protect your ears from the sound characteristics of a gun going off but will let you hear people so it actually has a little amplifier in there um mm that specifically lets through and amplifies um, the frequencies associated with uh, human speech so that people can talk to you while you are protecting your ears. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah um, they didn't have that in the 70s, though. I, probably not. But I'm just saying. And the other thing they didn't have is, I mean, there's even more sophisticated ones. Now, you can go out now and buy a pair of Bluetooth earplugs. They're plugs. They go. There's no wire between them. Um, and this thing... You can not only hear your music being played over Bluetooth from your phone, but you can also listen to the outside world. So it actually has microphones in them, and it merges both. So now when you go running, you can hear your music and hear the cars driving up about to hit you. So that's pretty cool um, that they've got those things now. So imagine what they'll have in 200 years. I just wanted to say that. Good point. So. That's the last thing for me to say on this one. All right, then. Let's move on to the last one today, entitled The Time Stealer. And I think this is one of the best ones. It's definitely more the, the, the most wacky one. Yeah. Which is saying a lot from the last one. <laughs> I, I think the last one was the worst one, personally, <laughs> if I had to rank them. All right. We'll, we'll, rank, we'll, we'll give our rankings here in a second. Okay. All right. So uh, the PDF on the... On the DVD, this this is combined with the uh, cry. No, what was the other one called? The Mirror of Futility. Yeah. Uh, but it might have been re- released separately at some point. I don't know. All right, so it starts off with the Enterprise coming into contact with a time distortion field. So they're they kind of depict this by everybody speaking with dots between the words so they decide to avoid it so they they kind of change course a little bit and when they do so they come across an alien ship and uh, like in the previous issue this ship is of a strange design and much larger than the enterprise spock scans it and says that there's only two life forms aboard they beam the two people over and it happens to be a large barbarian that looks a lot like conan and a wizard who looks like Merlin from the Disney film Sword and Stone. And when I say wizard, I mean a pointy hat and everything. He looks like Merlin from that cartoon. So as soon as they beam over, the barbarian starts to attack everything he can with his large axe. And he seems to have the strength of ten men. Spock notices that the wizard seems to be chanting something, so he assumes that the barbarian's supernatural strength is coming from him. And so he nerve pinches the wizard And when he does so, the barbarian is easily overcome. Later, when the wizard wakes, we learn that these two are on a mission to stop the time distortion wave. 
this cloud of energy comes over their planet every century or so and stays there for quite a while. And this has grossly stunted their culture's growth. Kirk offers to help, and he orders the Enterprise to fire at the energy cloud, which basically just causes it to notice the Enterprise and start heading over there. Spock and the wizard come up with this crazy idea that they're going to use the wizard's magic so that they can project the thoughts of all of the wizard's people throughout all of time to the creature at one time. So the creature will be bombarded with thousands, millions, billions of people's thoughts and feelings all at once. The wizard uses the Enterprise's deflectors and attempts this. It does not stop the creature, but it does seem to slow it down. Spock then joins the attack by adding all of Vulcan history into this deflector magical attack. This seems to work, and the cloud is stunned into submission. Spock then conjectures that the cloud is actually just an infant looking for its mother, and they track down a nearby star system in which it originated from. They tractor beam the cloud over to that star, and they drop it off. On their way out of the system, Kirk and Spock discuss where the wizard and the barbarian had come from. The barbarian had said that his people left a planet called Earth thousands of years ago. Spock states that when he was in contact with the wizard, he caught a glimpse of the wizard's people leaving a sinking continent. This must mean that these people are descendants of the lost continent of Atlantis. Oh my god. And you like this one better than the Phantom of the Opera. I've changed my mind. (laughs) So, this was a wacky one. Oh, is that it? You're done? Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay, so I changed my mind. I'm sorry. You you doing the synopsis reminded me of how much this one sucked. (laughs) May I count the ways? Uh, Please. Number one. Somehow, Klee the wizard is able to hurl a weapon at Gola made from mind mojo of all the people that have ever that have lived now and have ever lived through the millennia from his people. So a lot of dead people are somehow contributing to his mind mojo attack. Right. Magic. Oh, my God. And then number two. So Spock is able to take over that barrage with the the mind mojo or whatever from all the Vulcans that are alive and all that have lived through the ages. Is that right? That is correct. Wow. Okay. Amazing. This this magic is amazing. And the fact the fact that Spock can plug into it is equally amazing. So and in the end, Gola turns out to be a child. That has been in an irregular orbit around Klee's star system for millennia. A child. Right. It's a very so long-lived they, they, species. They say that towards the end. Right. And then, uh, number four, Conrack and Clea are actually descendants of the sunken civilization of Atlantis, who apparently developed space travel and faster-than-light travel abilities in spaceships, uh, to escape the sinking rather than going to Europe or Africa. Right. <laughs> wow. You know what? That's amazing. <laughs> uh, there's probably more, but I, I'm just going to stop there. Right. So he, he's um, the barbarian. I, I forgot their names. Uh, I didn't, it didn't. Conrack. Okay. So he told Kirk that. His race is as old as Kirk's race, but because of this time distortion, uh, they've evolved slower, right? So they should have spaceships and stuff, but because of this, they're still, you know, in the Middle Ages, or he's even, that seems to be further back than that. So they're barbarians and wizards and who knows what else on this planet. Right. But they still have spaceships, and if you're going to say that they came from Atlantis, then that means they had spaceships way before Kirk's ancestors had spaceships. Exactly. Exactly. How else did they so get? I'm really magic. <laughs> magic, because that's basically the only reason I could see they have this wizard guy in there is to explain how they had a spaceship. 
Yeah, that doesn't explain how they have a spaceship. No, but that's what they said. I mean, it was through his magic that created the spaceship they were in. Right. Uh, 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 okay. And I liked how Spock just accepted it. Oh, it is magic. It's <laughs> beyond science. It All his abilities are magic. And I'm like, what? Spock would never say that. No. There's a scientific would, explanation for it. Exactly. Anything that's beyond your technolo- technological prowess is considered magic. But he would never say it was magic. So that was a little out of character for him. But he was able to uh, to do it, so... I guess he's a magician now. Yeah. Well, and not only is Spock doing things that are out of character, so is McCoy. So McCoy came up with, you know, the time traveling explanation um, as to why their weapons could not hurt the time dilating Gola. I mean, he explained that. Yeah. I, so, I, I skipped that in the synopsis. What? Okay. Go ahead and say yeah, but, what it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. So. They're attacking Gola, but he doesn't seem to be uh, harmed by it or slowed down much. And so McCoy comes up with the interesting idea that the time-traveling Gola is able to just step out of time by the time the weapon arrives to Gola's physical position. So it's like, wow, McCoy, that's a pretty interesting explanation. Why didn't Spock come up with that? I mean, that's really Spock's territory. Right. But I like Spock's retort. I think that's hilarious. Right. Where he basically calls him on it. He's like, well, that's un- uncannily insightful of you. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Sarcastic, yeah. So, um, anyway. So, that was kind of weird. Yeah, the whole thing's a mess. You're right. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I ever said that Cryer and the Emptiness was the worst. This is clearly the worst. Of the three. Now, as far as artwork goes, I really like the uh, art depiction of the barbarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wizard, I would buy the wizard more if he didn't have moons and stars on his pointed hat. <laughs> that just really makes him look like a cartoon character. Yeah, he's a cartoon character. But uh, but aside from that, I thought the art was pretty solid. Um, yeah, I think there's some, definitely some scenes where McCoy looks really good. Good. He looks like DeForest Kelly. Uh, same thing for Kirk and Spock. I mean, not every panel is picture perfect, you know, photo, well, somewhat photorealistic. Right. But, but the ones that they chose to spend more time with, I think uh, I think they did a good job of capturing the original actors. Uh, but that's not every panel. Except for Ahura. Oh, well. And Sulu. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so we still have uh, Heidi Klum Ahura. Right. Um, and we've got um, the medium size Afro incarnation of Sulu. So, right. just, yeah. That, that's but we have Chekhov. He's, he's made his appearance. He's replaced Connors, I think, officially. Yeah, but did he say anything? Or is he just there? I don't uh, remember him. I think they, he refers to him one time. He calls him Chekhov, so that's how I knew it was him. Okay. But I, I'm just scanning quickly. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just trying to find where he is, where he's referred to. Um, I thought he was. Okay, well, I, I'm sure he is. I'm just, but I don't think he had any lines. Uh, he no, I don't think he did. Uh. He he wasn't saying Wessel. Oh, there he is. There he is. Phasers armed and ready. Chekhov, armed and ready, sir. And he's got a blue tunic on. <laughs> and he looks. More like Sulu. McCoy. Oh. <laughs> I think he looks more like McCoy than anybody. And, of course, McCoy is standing right behind him. Oh, well. It's still him. I, well, I'm yeah, giving, at least I'm giving it, it to the writers. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, giving it to the writers, not to the art department. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. Um, and when I was a kid, um, I loved these uh, these 45 record stories good um, yeah and they're aimed at kids so right so i mean i didn't have these but you know they had star wars ones and uh, batman and godzilla and all those other ones so i mean they, they they were around for a good long time and i remember really liking them good yeah not, 
Not that I, I, don't I like them so now, effective. but as a kid, being the target audience, they really filled that niche. Good, good. Because that's, yeah, I think people that, adults, that can put themselves in the shoes of kids and actually successfully provide things that entertain them, like toy ma- makers or things like this. Uh, how anybody came up with Teletubbies and figured that would entertain kids. <laughs> I don't know how they do that. I, I applaud them. Right. So from that standpoint, fine, fine comics. Well, yeah. <laughs> they don't hold up. They're not true to the source material and they're, and they're not, you know, for an adult, I could see my dad not wanting to listen to these to me. No. Now I'm understanding, you know, because I could never understand why they didn't want to listen to them with me. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, I get it. Right. But they were successful entertaining the target market. Oh, you, yeah. You, have, you just did a testimony for it. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I wish they, you know, I guess our, our kids, because they have every form of media available to them, mm-hmm. TV, Movies, music, whatever they want are into. Yeah, um, I I really think this this kind of stuff's you know dead, right? I mean, I don't see any more. I mean, they have audiobooks, but they don't have like just little short story audiobooks that I know of for for kids. Well, I know that I had bought. This was a few. Uh, this is probably about four years ago or something. I had bought um, one of my nephew's kids actually both of their kids i had bought them at costco little books that would also speak to them i mean that would say the story so they had a little chip or something in there a battery or something right right so they were star wars stories and so i had seen this at costco trying to find something for the kids what am i going to find for the kids and then i come upon these things it's like hey okay so they do make things like this kind of, but I, I don't know how, how readily available they are. But I, I found at least one example at Costco. Yeah, now that you mention it, uh, when my kids were little, they had a, a Superman one that they would – they could have like a pen or something. Okay. It would, it would read it to them, but a little different than – a little different, but I guess it's the same premise. Right, only slightly different packaging and technology being used. Right. A lot more convenient, too. I mean, you had to get this. You had to take your book over to the record player and put the record on and, you know, you know, have your have your parents turn it on for you. Or you were given permission to actually use the record player, which was probably one of the most fragile pieces of electronics in the house. And uh, and then that's the way you'd have to experience to bring the book and that kind of thing. And then now wait for, and wait for the skip so that you could jump uh, it over one groove. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh yeah digital technology makes all of our lives better yep okay all right well, anything else for this issue no nope all right so we don't have anything else to talk about in this these three books did you want to rank them might as well what the hell heck so um I, they as you mentioned earlier <laughs> i like what you said earlier before we started recording they're all Competing very hard for the bottom. <laughs> oh, Is that what I you would said? never say something about me. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> it, it, I, I'm paraphrasing. I didn't know you. I don't recall your exact words, but um, yeah, these all are not that good. But definitely, as we just said a few minutes ago, the time uh, stealer or whatever, that's obviously the bottom. It don't get much bur- worse than that. And then definitely, I think, Cryer in the Emptiness is the next worst. And then uh, the Mirror for Futility is the best, I think. Um, of these three, I would agree with you um, with those three. Yeah, definitely your, your ranking matches mine. Yeah, although it didn't at first. I completely I, – I definitely screwed up about the bottom ranking. So I don't know if you remember it, but there was three other gold key books that we've already covered – um, one was called the Robot Masters. Uh, if you remember that, it had like a bright green colored Romulan with a that was kind of the motion picture era. Uh huh. Okay. He had like a robot army or something that that Kirk and them had to fight. Uh, yeah. It it was it wasn't horrible, but it 
I, I would say it was probably um, better than the 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 last two we did here, but not as good as uh, Mirror of Futility. Mm-hmm. And then we had the Dinosaur Planet. Do you recall that one? Yeah. Loosely. Yeah, that was uh, that would be also kind of towards the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so you okay? So yes, I get your point. This and Gold Key are not the best ones in the world, and now you're comparing them. Wow, well, that's cool. If we're gonna rank all six, directly, rank directly. Them. You're comparing them directly. That's this is this is fascinating. But my favorite of all of the Peter Pans is probably the most ridiculous, which is the Passage to Moav, which is the oh. one with the little creature that uh, made everybody scared and and affected everybody's emotions. It's a silly story, but I did like that one. I, I don't remember it. Uh, oh, you do. It was the one we did it in Bandai at the same same. Uh, oh, the bear. Yeah, the bear. It was basically the same story. One was one was. Um, yeah, one we, was uh, Peter Pan, and one was uh, the Ganja uh, uh, manga. Manga. Yeah. Right. But they had very similar stories. Uh, but yeah, the the one with the, everybody's emotions going crazy uh, with the little cat thing. Is my favorite of the Peter Pans. Just because it's that ridiculous. Right. And it had the, the blue-skinned um, Mores. Ah, okay. That's the <laughs> one with the mostly human but different skin color Mores. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So anyways, all in all, enjoyful six issues. <laughs> right, as long as you're not looking for quality. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. I looking for to be entertained, and there you all go. six of those entertained me okay. more than just a run of the mill DC comic that just painted by the numbers. Mm. These actually, because they were so different, were yeah, were joyful, joyful. So joyful. Okay. So you're saying full of time joy. That's what I'm is, saying. The time stealer is joyful. I loved it. He was a barbarian <laughs> smashing up stuff with a giant. Axe. Well, yeah, he looked like Conan, and I love Conan. So there what's there not there to like? Go. What's I, there not I don't know. Like? I don't know. The wizard? <laughs> the grand wizard? Could I don't deal, know. I could you, if you left the hat off, I would have liked the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyways. What about next week? So next week we'll be back with episode 243, and we're going to do IDW's uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Fool's Gold. Fool's cool. Gold. DS9. Haven't done yeah, that for a while. Haven't seen that one in a long time. Right. Right. So this was the only non next generation or original series uh mini series that uh that IDW ever did. Aside from a few of their like um, you know. They did a Pike one and they did a, mm -hmm. a Calhoun one. But right. they've never done Enterprise, Voyager, and they only did one Deep Space Nine. Okay. Well, quite frankly, I did not recall that this one was out there still to be done. So this, I'm, I am pleasantly uh, surprised. Yeah, it'll be good. I think I'm, I've always wanted to read it. I don't know where in the Deep Space Nine chronologically it fits, but I know that it's, it's during the seasons because this right. goes through. Okay. Well, good. So. so we'll find out when we read it for next week. Exactly. We all will. Everybody. Exactly. Everybody's reading along. Exactly. All right. So until next week, hope everybody has a good one and talk to you later. Right. See you next time on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.